0: We've been looking at uh, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ. We'll be looking at uh, some other aspects of uh, Christ in the spring, uh, beginning with the resurrection and ascension. And we'll be looking at the work of Christ, segueing into the work of Christ, uh, the doctrine of the atonement in the spring. But uh, we're still. We're still thinking about the person of Christ. And tonight's lesson is a kind of a kind of summary of uh, all that we've been doing so far. But what I want to do is just simply focus on one passage. We've referred to it many times. But I actually want us to dig deep into Philippians 2, 5 through 11. An amazing passage, probably... Um, a hymn. We might call it a hymn. It, it might have had an existence of its own before Paul inserts it into Philippians. It looks like something uh, that's almost like a piece of, of a creed, an early confession of faith, maybe in a, in a form that folks could, could recite, maybe in a worship service, or perhaps even sing Uh, in uh, a worship service, and lots of folks have conjectured that maybe that is its origin. And and Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, inserts it right here into Philippians chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves uh, of the purpose of this passage, and we, we must not lose sight of that, that what Paul is actually doing in Philippians is invoking uh, an, an ethical command. Uh, he wants people to behave in a certain way influenced by their understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you. Uh, look at verses 2 to 4. i Given them, therefore, you complete my joy by being of the same mind. Right? So it's a, it's a certain mindset that Paul has in view. Having the same love, perhaps hinting that they didn't all have the same love, that there was a little bit of discord and uh, disagreement uh, in the Philippian church. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Why is he saying that? Well, perhaps because some of them were thinking about themselves a lot. You know, the me-ism. Oh, say, can you see what's in it for me? Uh, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, putting, putting yourself first. Well, we're familiar enough with all of that. We, we live in... in Uh, an entitlement culture we know our rights and we insist on them and uh, we know our rights when it comes to church because it's all about me after all the church is there to serve me and 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 my interests and and my concerns and uh, we're quick to um, you notice i'm saying we here uh, I'm not thinking of anyone in, uh, in particular I'm, I'm just saying this is, the, this is church in the 21st century Actually it's church in the 1st century And it's probably the Philippian church And they were quick to point out what what they thought Church was for, and it was for them It's for me, it's for my concerns And then uh, later after, verse 12, work out your own salvation. So it's prefaced by, by a concern about, about putting others first, and it is followed by this uh, instruction, work out your own salvation. And in between comes this phenomenal passage about, about Jesus. And as we shall see, this passage is theologically quite difficult to understand. Paul isn't afraid of using theology in the interests of instructing people how to behave. You know, there's no, there's no, just give me Jesus, you know, I don't want all this theology stuff. we, we don't need all this doctrine. Just, just give me Jesus. Well, okay, call Paul. I'll give you Jesus, but this is this is what it is, and let's look at it. And he's, he's doing nothing different here in Philippians than than what happens elsewhere in Paul and Peter and John. Second Corinthians eight nine, very familiar text. We cite this sometimes. We don't hear at First Presbyterian Church, but, but churches do cite it at the time when the offering is being taken. For you know the. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become uh, rich. It's the same, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. He was rich, he became poor. Now, you do the same. Or 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Jesus is more than an example. At the liberal church of the 20th century just, just took the example of Jesus and that's it. That, that's all there was to Jesus, an example to follow. Now, there's more to Jesus than being an example, of course. But he, he is an example to us. You know, WWJD, it's not always the appropriate question to ask. Jesus was the Messiah, so he did things and said things that you and I don't do and, and shouldn't do. And, and he said things that were appropriate to his office, for sure. But sometimes it is the, the most appropriate thing to ask, what would Jesus do in, in this situation? Now, let's look at the overall structure of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And you'll notice that there are three sections to it. It talks about the pre-existence of Jesus before the incarnation. It talks about the humiliation of Jesus. That he took the form of a servant. That he humbled himself even to the point of death. And it also speaks about the exaltation of Jesus. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him. Given him a name which is above every name. Now let's, uh, let's follow the, the passage, and you might want to keep uh, the front page, after you've finished this page, you might want to turn back and keep that front page open before you, follow the, the train of thought. Though he was in, and I'm, and I'm going to follow pretty much the ESV at this point, Though he was in the form of God. Though he was in. Now, there's a question. Is, uh, something looks fairly obvious until you actually ask a few questions of it. And uh, what? Though, though he was in, what does, that, what does that mean? What does that refer to? And, and, and some see that expression, though he was in, and it's just one word in, in Greek. The right? uh, huparchon in Greek. What does that mean? And and some suggest that while he was incarnate, he was also in the form of God. Being in the form of God while he was was God, though he was in the form of God, right? He was incarnate, and at the time he was incarnate, he was also the second person of the Trinity. Now that's true, but it's not the truth here. Something can be true, but it's not the truth being taught here. The truth being taught here is a is a pre temporal truth. He was in the form of God and and then he took something, human nature. So so though he was in the form of God is a is a reference to something before the incarnation, not during the incarnation. You you following so what we have here in verse six is a is a reference to Jesus before the incarnation. And and what is it that's being said of Jesus before he becomes incarnate, before he takes on the form of a servant? And what is being said is he was in the form of God. And all of you read Greek, of course. Sorry, these notes are are meant for somewhere else. Um, And and so just skip over the the Greek. I tried to convince someone that actually this was Welsh, not Greek, but it's, it's actually Greek en um, in, morphe in the form of God now what does that mean? in the form of God this is, this is something that's being said of Jesus before, before his birth before his conception you know in the time of let's say in the time of um, Ezekiel in the time of David in the time of Moses in the time of Adam actually before the creation of the world he was in the form of God Now, some, uh, especially older commentators, nineteenth-century commentators in particular, will wax eloquent and tell you all about the classical use of uh, the word "form" uh, in uh, first-century um, Greek. Well, you've all you've all been to, you've all studied. I mean, I know you do. You tell me all the time that you read Plato. It's, it's the kind of thing you read before going to bed at night and uh, you're all familiar and do you remember philosophy classes in high school or perhaps in, in college they, they were not easy and I remember going to uh, seminary and I, I, I had not spent a great deal of time studying philosophy I was a math major and I was reading physics and stuff. And, and so I, I had to go back and redo my philosophy. And, and I remember being told, uh, I went up to my professor and said to him, you know, I, I really haven't read much philosophy, so what do I need to do? And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to read 24 volumes by a man called Frank Copleston on the history of uh, Western philosophy. I said, are you kidding? No, he said, I'm actually being serious. They're only paperbacks, right? They, they were once hardbacks, but now they're paperbacks. But, they, but there is still a lot of reading <laughs> well you remember reading Plato Plato talks about forms right he talks about accidents what you see, what you perceive what you can touch and feel but there are forms and the forms are the, are the real existence of the thing apart from its accidents you remember all this? the essence of a thing that a thing can exist even even apart from the physical dimension of it. You know, things like um, you know, for Plato, it was things like beauty and goodness and, and, and things like that that they that they that they have an existence of, apart from your perception of it, and that's called a form. Now, Paul certainly had read Plato and and some you know some are saying this is what paul is doing here he's he's saying jesus had an existence he had the true form the, the 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 essence of something before before you could see him in 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 human form he was in the form of god the inner nature or substance of a thing it, it's possible that's what Paul means. Uh, it's also possible that he's drawing actually from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Where this word f- form, morphe, is used as a synonym for words like image and, uh, and glory. Think of Genesis 1, 26, 27. Adam was created after the image and likeness of God. There's, there's, a, there's a reflection. It may, be, it may be a bit of both. I'm not sure how you'd ever know for sure what Paul is, uh, is implying here. But let's, let's go with this, um, with this uh, idea. Because, because what, what Paul is definitely wanting you to understand here is that before the incarnation, Jesus was as much God as you can ever define God to be he was in the form of God just as he'll go on to say he was in, he became in the form of a servant uh, however you define a servant however you define uh, the essential properties of a servant he was that well he had all the essential properties of God uh, and and to, to Corroborate that—that's what Paul means. He goes on to say in verse six, counting equality with God. Right? He was equal with God. You know what the sign equals? You know, two lines, two, two dashes equals. Two plus two equals. Right? So you're saying that that four is 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 the same as two plus two. They're they're, they're the same. They're equivalents. Right? You got you got. One apple and one apple, and, and you've got two apples, and, and it's the same. Equality with God. Before the incarnation, he was equal with God. He was equal with God. Now, here comes some trouble. He did not, let's, let's, look, at the, let's look at the ESV. He didn't verse 6 who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now let's let's try and get a handle. Let's try and get a mental picture on what Paul is saying. A thing to be grasped. And actually there are two ways of looking at it. Is is Paul suggesting the idea of he didn't have to reach out and grab hold of equality with God because he already had equality with God so he didn't have to reach out and grasp it is that what he means? no I don't think so but that, that's, that's a possible understanding of what Paul means or, or is he saying the opposite not, not the idea of, of reaching out and grasping but of, of holding on you know, grasping hold in the sense of I'm not going to let this go you all know I have a puppy, right? I've told you this. He'll he'll grab hold of something and he won't let it go, and you can pull and pull and pull, and he pulls tighter and tighter and tighter, and you have to prise his jaws open so he lets go of it. Now is, is that the is that the idea here that that Jesus had deity, right? He had the form of God, he had equality with God, but he didn't. He didn't grasp hold of it in a sense that said, I'm never, ever, ever going to allow anything to occur that's, that's in any way going to redefine what my deity is. Look at the text, verse 6. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but... But emptied himself. In addition to being God, in addition to being equal with God, he became God and man. And not just God and man, but God and man in a very low condition. In the form of a servant. Let me put it in a different language. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped in the sense that if he were to become incarnate, he would insist on his rights. It would be incarnation of a very, very defined kind. Now let's, uh, let's underline what it is that Paul has been saying. He's been talking about the pre-existence of Christ, and what has he, he said? He said very clearly that before the incarnation, he had the form of God and he had equality with God. Now he's going to go on to say something now about his humiliation. And what he says about his humiliation, it begins there in verse 7, He emptied himself. Now, we've talked about this before. This is not new. This is the 2011 rendition, ESV rendition, of kenosis, ekenosum. Kenoho, the, the verb to, to pour out or to empty. And it would be the verb that you'd imply about a bucket of water and you'd, you'd pour pour out the water, that, this is the verb that you'd imply it's a, it's a very, very daring verb so daring that many translations balk at translating it literally so the ESV that's in the pews in the church which is the 2007 edition of the ESV not the 2011 edition, 2007 doesn't say he emptied himself but it says uh, he made himself nothing which is what it means, right? That's the, that's, I think that's the perfectly correct interpretation of this verb, but it's not a literal translation. Now, I've told you before about the ESV. The, the, the reason why the ESV came into being was because it, it insisted it was a literal translation, and then it kind of balked here in in Philippians two, and then and then because of pressure from from certain individuals, in particular, and and so on. They they were persuaded, no, actually, they need to be consistent about insisting on literal translation. So even though this is difficult, he emptied himself. They, they, They needed to stand up for the principle of translation that they said they were employing. So in the 2011 edition, this is not a request that we changed to the 2011 I'm, I'm, really, I'm really pointing it out to you that's all I'm doing um, he emptied himself now you're, you're dying to know this, that it's the third aorist indicative of the verb and, that, and you'll sleep tonight knowing that but, but the aorist tense tends to imply a, a definitive action that takes place as it were in a moment. Like a once and for all thing. So something happened. He was in the form of God, he had equality with God, and then something happened. Definitively. Once and for all. And and, and what was that thing? He emptied himself. Now you've been learning this word. And some of you have sent me emails uh, implying the word and the word is kenosis. I don't, don't, don't tell me you've forgotten the word kenosis. Kenosis meaning to empty. What does kenosis actually mean? What does the verb form mean here? He emptied himself. Now this led in the 19th century, we won't go into that, I've, I've, I've dropped the font down, you don't need to read all of that. But in the 19th century, in Germany, uh, in, in England in particular, uh, for some reason among Anglicans especially, in Episcopalians in the 19th century in England, uh, this, this, this view became very popular, it was partly to pander to higher criticism, uh, because uh, higher criticism was beginning to deny the deity of Jesus, and so on, and here was here was a useful idea. Here was a useful verb to say that that Jesus wasn't wasn't quite God because he emptied himself. Um, he emptied himself of what? That's the question, isn't it? And if you answer that question, you're 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 going to commit heresy in a heartbeat. He, ans- he emptied himself of omnipresence. He emptied himself of omnipotence. He emptied himself of all but love. To cite, sadly, a, a, a hymn of of Wesley's. Now, let's. I'm, I'm looking at the section called critique. Let's let's think about that for a second before we try and answer what does he mean. Let's let's think about the answer. That what it means is that Jesus emptied himself of a part of his deity. Well, problem number one is that God cannot change. God is immutable. He doesn't change. It's what keeps us going in the midst of trouble and trial. Time and, and space and, and everything around us changes, but thou who changest not, abide with me. Isn't that what we say? saying? Oh, thou who changest not. You know, when, when all around you seems to be at sea, what, what, where do you turn? You turn to the one true and living God who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So th- that's the first problem, that if God empties himself of a part of his deity, we, we, are, we are in difficulty here because God doesn't change. He's immutable. Secondly, we talked, and, and don't expect you to remember this, but, but we did talk last year about something called the simplicity of God, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity. And by that we meant that you can't think of God like an orange, now I'm into apples at the minute, B- wonderful Carolinian apples, freshly picked from the tree, and you know who you are who gave me these apples this week, and thank you very, very much. I love fresh apples that have just been picked from the tree, tree that have a crunch to them. But I'm not talking about apples, I'm talking about oranges. And when you peel an orange, you have segments, you know, eight, nine, ten segments. Here's, here's segment one, and it's his omnipresence, and here's segment two, and it's his omnipotence, and here's segment three, it's his holiness or whatever. And, and you can peel away various segments, and you can still put one segment back. And, 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 have you ever done this? Peel an orange in one piece. Have you ever tried doing that? And then put it all back together again with, with just one segment inside. You've still got an orange. I could hold it up. and It's still an orange, but it's only got one segment left in it. That's, that's, that's the canonic theory of the 19th century. That Jesus divested himself of eight of his attributes and just left one. Or, or something like that. That is a violation of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Because God is... Love in all of his being. It's not just a part of him is love. All of him is love. He is, he is holy in all of his being. He is holy love and he is loving holiness. And, and if you remove one of those, this would be a doctrine of incarnation by divine suicide. He would cease to be God. It, we would no longer be talking about Trinitarianism. We'd be talking about Binitarianism. Two persons, not three. Now the problem, the problem is, it, is, is that it's, it's, a basic, it's a basic assumption that you can't have a divine nature and a human nature at the same time in the one person. That's, that's part of the problem. Now, if that can't happen in the incarnation, then it can't happen now either. And and we believe, don't we, that there is one who sits at the right hand of God in a human body who is our Savior and who will be our Savior forever. If this is a problem for the incarnation, it's also a problem for his, con- for his condition that we call his exaltation. Because he is still divine and human, two natures in one person, and will always be. You, you, you following? Let's get back to this, this, uh, this word. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself? Keep reading. That's always a good principle. Don't stop reading. Sometimes you overthink things. Some of you do. You know, you, you overthink things, and you get stuck. You know, it's like an old-fashioned record. Oh, I, I had lunch with somebody yesterday. Uh, let me just say, a, a, a Baptist minister in town. I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, lunch with him has become a dear friend, and uh, we were talking about records. You know, young folk here don't remember records, but but some of us do. You know, the the twelve-inch records, and and remember you put the needle down and and sometimes you'd hear that click, click and it's stuck. It's playing the same thing over and and over. And you get stuck on this word empty. But just keep on reading. But he emptied himself by taking. But it's not emptying by subtracting. It's emptying by taking. Now I know mathematically that doesn't you know, you, you, you... just keep going what is Paul saying he's saying in addition to being in the form of God in addition to, to, to being equal with God he is now also also something else in addition he has the form of a servant he has the the fashion or the likeness of a, of a, of a man he, he is divine that, that divinity doesn't cease, it cannot cease. But in addition he takes a human nature. Now C. S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity actually very helpfully says that a painter, you know, pours out right Emptying, pouring, that's the verb. He he pours out in his work. And yet he remains quite distinct from his painting. You can can hold the concept in your mind of of pouring out. But he still exists. He has not become less. That pouring out has actually become more. Right? The, the person is, is, is still the person, but in addition, there's a painting, or a piece of music, or, or a, a, who's the wood carver? There, there are wood carvers here. You were all lining up about that tree a few months ago, <laughs> and, and getting a piece of that tree, and, and, and Dr. Ferguson's house is full of bits of this tree that you've carved. He, he told me. Now, you, you haven't lost anything. You haven't become less of a human being than you were. But in addition, there's, there's something else. That's a useful illustration. Or uh, um, Bruce Ware uh, talks about in his, in his book on, uh, on Christology. U- useful. Imagine going into a, a, a car showroom. And you see a brand new, spanking new, glistening car. A Lexus. I'll never drive a Lexus, but I, I, I you know, I've, I've, I've envied as 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 one has stopped next to me at a stoplight, the the one here at Bull Street. And there they are in their in their convertible Lexus. Imagine you're going into a, a car showroom and, and you say, I want to test drive this uh, this Lexus. And for some crazy reason, they say, Sure. <laughs> take it out, take it for a spin and you take it out and you're driving along and then you decide, yeah, I need to give this the works, I need, I need to really test, there's no point driving around with all the red lights in Colombia, you need to go out in the country. And you go out in the country as Rosemary and I, uh, sometime last year we were following our GPS, we were in, a, in Idaho, is that where we were? Idaho, right? And, and uh, we were trying to get somewhere and all of a sudden we're on a dirt road. We're in the middle of a cornfield, on a dirt road. R- Rosemary took pictures, sent it to my children to embarrass me, because I was insisting that the GPS knew where it was going. Because R- Rosemary said all along, we shouldn't turn here. <laughs> we're, we're, on, we're on a dirt road. Imagine you're, you're driving this car, this brand new Lexus, and you're on a dirt road, and, and it's been raining, and this, this, this dirt, this mud is flying put the top up and you just let this stuff come all over you and you, 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 you arrive back in the showroom and the man says um, what have you done to my car? and you say it's still there hasn't changed a bit underneath all this mud it's still there it's the same car that I drove out but there's some more to it now that's called test driving emptying by adding Right? he was in the form of God he had equality with God but in addition he takes what? the form of a servant actually he takes the form of a servant a doulos which I think could be rendered slave but servant someone who is totally submissive now I come to do your will. O oh my God, for your law is within my heart. Not my will, but thy will be done. He's a servant. He's come to do the will of his heavenly Father. At no point in the life of Jesus do you ever hear him referring to his own will and talking to his own will. His, his, entire, his entire life is lived out to obey his Father's will. He's not there to insist upon his own rights. He he didn't say, if I'm going to become incarnate, I'm going to do it in style. (laughs) I mean, in style, I'm going to come and, and live in a palace. I'll be a human being, but I'm going to live in a palace. And he's born in a stable. Because there was no room for him in the inn. And he has to flee as an exile into Egypt. Because they were trying to kill him. He's raised in Nazareth, where people said, no good thing comes out of Nazareth. His, his deity, his form of godness, his equality with God is still there, but you can't see it. Actually, I think there were times when he couldn't see it himself. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Calvin used the word "crupsis," which means which means like like a, like a veiling. His deity was veiled. It was veiled from humanity. Just occasionally, you you glimpsed there was more to Jesus than just this human being. On on. On the Mount of Transfiguration, at the time of his baptism, occasionally, occasionally, when he when he when he would say something and it would and and, and glory would be demonstrated, but sometimes, sometimes, he just looked like a servant. He just looked like a servant. Now Luther's famous uh, word for it was incognito. He was God, he was in the form of God, but he was incognito Almost in disguise, if you like He took the form of a servant, he was found in fashion as a, as a man he, he didn't insist upon his rights Remember, that's what Paul is trying to urge in, in the church in Philippi he, he, He's using the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation to say Don't keep insisting on your rights, because Jesus didn't insist upon his rights In human form, being born in the likeness of men in human form. So in addition to being God, he now has eyes and ears and a nose and, and, and a face and arms and legs and kidneys and liver and spleen and, and, and a human mind, human affections, human psychology, human will, a human way of seeing things and understanding things and a human way of talking about things too. He was a human being in human form, as well as being God, a divine nature. He has a human nature. But there's only one He. As we begin to think about this, and it's not easy to think about this, there's only one He. There are not two He's the He who was God and the He who is human. It's the same He. He is divine and human at the same time, and there's only one he, there's only one him, there's only one person. They're not two persons. That's a heresy called, uh, called Nestorianism. We're going we're to come to it when we talk about the Chalcedonian Creed. The, 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 the absoluteness of his, of his humanity in human form. He humbled himself. And actually the sense is that he he humbled himself right from the beginning of his incarnation right through to the point of death. You could read it and, and, and you'd be incorrect in reading it. But by thinking that what Paul is saying he humbled himself by dying. And that's true but that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that he humbled himself right up to the point of death his entire life was an act of humiliation humbling and humbling down and 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 down down down. right up to the point of dying on a cross he was obedient look at that uh, look at that quotation We'll, we'll come back to it next spring when we talk about the the work of Christ, but look at that quotation under the word obedience. Can you pick that up? Right, just before the, the point number five, the exaltation of Christ. See that quotation. It comes from John Murray. The Scripture regards the work of Christ as one of obedience, and, and this is this is the one I want you to remember. And uses this term or or the concept that it designates with sufficient frequency to warrant the conclusion that obedience is generic and therefore embracive enough to be viewed as the unifying or integrating principle. Now, you know, that that might not make you stand up and sing it makes me stand up and sing That's, that's a typical John Murray sentence it's, it, John Murray never said anything simply but, but what he's saying is If you want to understand Embrace If you want to embrace the, the totality of, of what Jesus came to do One word That, could, that, that is big enough And strong enough to, to, to embrace it all Is the word Obedience that in everything that Jesus did, he was obedient. It's a, it's a category word that, that summarizes how you view the life of Jesus. And it was a life of obedience from the get-go. He was obedient. Do you remember as a 12-year-old when, when the parents, you know, there must have been a big train of people heading to a festival in Jerusalem and they're he- heading home. You know, it's hard to keep track of where the children are. And all of a sudden, you know, don't we feel bad about, uh, about child rearing. You know, Mary and Joseph can't even find their son, and he's Jesus. And they have to go all the way back to the city, and he's in the temple. And, and do you remember what he said? I mean, I mean why are you surprised that I'm, I'm about my father's business? As, as a 12 year old, he has this consciousness of being about the father's business. So, this, this poem, this hymn talks about the pre-existence of Christ the humiliation of Christ and then thirdly it segues now into the exaltation of Christ the Christ who is now both divine and human two natures, one person he was only one nature pre-existence and that nature was divine he was in the form of God he had equality with God then he became two natures, divine and human And and now in the exaltation, what is being said of him, because there's only one him, is being said of him as the two-natured one person of Jesus Christ. And, And God also highly exalted him. Now the God there is a reference to the Father... Uh, everything that's been said so far has been about Jesus, but now all of a sudden there's a, there's a mention of the Father. God highly exalts him. Um, hi- hyper, if, if you can read Greek, huper, uh, huper, hyper, hyper exaltation. It's not just an exaltation, it's a hyper exaltation. And there's a sense in which there's a, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of balance between the hyper-humiliation and the hyper-exaltation. He went, he went all the way down, and now he goes all the way up, if I can put it that way. And uh, I've included here some verses that reflect something of the same thing. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now that language of glorification is, is the same language here as the language of exaltation. Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand no, what Paul is saying. He's not saying that the human nature becomes divinized. Right? In, in the exaltation of Jesus, which includes the resurrection and ascension and, 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 and being brought to the right hand of the Father, it's not that Paul is saying, now, that, that human nature becomes a divine nature. Right? He, he, he always has the, these two natures, and these two natures are always distinct the divine and human natures are always distinct they always remain intact but that human nature which was which was in the form of a servant it was in the form of a slave there's something glorious about it now not divine but glorious exalted you see a little glimpse of it at the resurrection I think you've just given a little glimpse of it. What happens at the resurrection? Jesus' human body seems to be able to appear and disappear. That's not, a, that's not saying that his human body has suddenly become divine, but, but it's a property of his human body in a state of exaltation. Or, or when the disciples are in the upper room and the door is locked and, and Jesus appears in the room. Now, some commentators, including a friend of mine, says that you know what the text doesn't tell you is that the disciples opened the door right but that's not how you that's not how I read it and I don't think that's the way you're meant to read it that suddenly in this locked room Jesus appears all of a sudden he's up in Galilee he still has a human body human mind, human will human affections and he always will in addition to a divine nature but that human body now has properties that belong to another existence another can I say dimension I think the Bible is giving you just a little, a little aperitif of what we can expect We'll have human bodies Heads, arms, legs, feet All of those things Yes, I think we'll eat Jesus ate fish in his resurrection body Imagine But I think we're just given a little little glimpse Of what, what exaltation means For those who are in Christ When we pass into a new dimension I don't understand sci-fi now, and that's my point But, but I, I think you're being given what, a little glimpse of what hyper-exaltation meant for Jesus And he's taken all the way to the right hand of God this is, this is his human nature, his human body It's not in a stable anymore It's not in a place called Nazareth Of which people said, you know, nothing good comes out of Nazareth It's at the right hand of God how do how does uh, john uh, depict it in revelation i saw a lamb and it was sitting on a throne that's 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 symbolic language of course that's that's apocalyptic language but what he's saying is he's he sees he sees jesus in his in his exalted human body and it's sitting at the right hand um, of god now just, just, just note right at the end and then we'll close before some of us go to a time of prayer that, that exaltation, that hyper exaltation unfolds in four phases and they are resurrection, ascension heavenly session and second coming we haven't got any time to expand on any of that uh, and the second coming is, is a couple of years away um, but just, just so you can see the, 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 the track here what, a, what an extraordinary Savior we have. And all of that in this little little passage in Philippians. Preexistence, humiliation, hyper-exaltation. Christology in about six verses. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for this passage in Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for a glimpse of our wonderful extraordinary saviour and ask that you would write these things upon our hearts for jesus sake amen